Welcome to the One Player Podcast, the show on solitaire board games. I'm your host, Albert, and this is episode 251. Under the sea. Under the sea. Under the sea. Hey, Julius. Uh, welcome back. Hello, Albert. How are you doing today? Doing well, but I'm confused because I thought this was a space game. This is a space game, but it's a it spends half the time under the sea in that space game. You spend half the time above the frozen planet and half the time under the water. Ah, okay. I I didn't realize that at first. I, you know, okay. So yeah, I'm just gonna jump in and say this. At first, I saw a picture. I said of the board. I said, "Wow, that's a really cool looking board. It looks like you could see the the water and it's reflecting things. It's super cool." I said, "No, that doesn't make any sense. It's a space game. This must be an asteroid, and they're on the bottom of the asteroid." So I'd already talked myself out of that. I'm not sure that they're on. Technically, they're on Europa, the frozen moon of Jupiter. Okay. Um. And there's caverns with, I'm not sure what is underneath under there, but there's some sort of thing that floats under the water. They they call it an ocean. Yeah, now that I look at close, I could see like ships traveling on the water and leaving a wake behind them. So yeah, I mean, I was right at first. Then I just <laughs> second-guessed myself and got it wrong. So anyway, we should mention what we're talking about today. We're talking about Artemis Project. Indeed. And this is a game by the Grand Gamers Guild and is a one to five player game. And it has been out for a few years or is it pretty recent? It's been out for a few years. Okay. They have actually a case start coming up with some expansion content. So there's there's more coming from the game, but we aren't talking about the expansions or anything like that. We are mm-hmm. we are talking about just the base game. Well, so what about the base game then? Well, let me go ahead and give a quick overview of how the base game works. So this is a six-round game where your goal is to collect the most amount of points over the course of six rounds. Um, This is a dice worker placement game where you're going to be rolling dice each round, then placing them at one of the seven uh, different spots around the board in order to be able to use them to take different actions. So you'll be collecting resources such as energy and minerals, using those to collect more workers to be able to enhance your dice or collect more buildings to use for special abilities uh, and go on various missions around the world. Keep doing that over six rounds, earning points along the way. At the end of the game, you'll score up who has the most points, both earned over the course of the game and on buildings, and whoever has the most amount of points wins. Okay, sounds straightforward enough. Relatively, yeah. yeah. Okay. You're maybe going to hear a similar attack along the, the rest, but yeah. Sounds very straightforward. <laughs> Would you like to throw us into some component discussion? Yeah, let's uh, let's talk about components next. I, this game seems to have some really interesting components. Which component I already mentioned. Do you think is interesting? Well, I'm going to start with the board because the board is really pretty. I really like okay. the board and the design of it is super cool. I think. Um, so the board is basically a map, uh, a section of the terrain. It, the landscape and in the top there's a shelf of ice and there's a ship on it and buildings and structures and stuff like this on it along the middle then is the the ledge which is actually also the score track that's super cool and then underneath is water and it's all very pretty there's very little on this board that is not art and it's and the art does not clash with the spots that are used for worker placement because there's there's generally 
there's seven different things out there on the board and it's pretty clear what they are they don't flow they don't like cross spaces you can see where things are and the overlay for where you place your dice and your workers it doesn't clash with the art it allows the art to shine pretty well from the style of the board so all of that the way they've designed both the graphic design and the art style for the board all look very nice and it's your mm-hmm. normal big four pla- fourfold board so um yeah the board's all very good in similar vein to the board are the building tiles. There's going to be uh, 26 different ocean tiles and 26 different surface tiles, and you'll div- there's two copies of each different. And when you're playing solo or two-player, you only use one of the two copies. When you play multiplayer, you play with both copies of them. But they look very similar style to the board themselves. During the first three rounds of the game, you'll have underwater buildings. During the second three rounds of the game, you'll have surface buildings um, and the underwater buildings commonly will give you new actions or new benefits or enhance actions the surface buildings will give you end game points they're similar to the main board in style because the surface buildings are going to be ice ones the bottom the ocean buildings are going to be water ones they mesh with the similar art style and similar clarity of icons to the main um to, to the way the main board works mm-hmm. and the, their their color schemes are very very distinctive. You're not going to confuse the ice and water at all. Uh, let me talk about the workers that each player has. Now, then, there's five different. The game plays up to five, so there's five different player markers. I don't think there's. I don't think there's any issues in terms of colorblindness. They've done a nice pastel set of color schemes, and the dice are all nice, chunky, big things. Um, there are colonists. There's four different types of colonists. There's I hate to say it. There's brown, blue, red, and purple. Technically, it's pioneers, engineers, marines, and stewards. And I, I just call them, with the exception of the marine, because their whole point of the marine is to attack your fellow players. Um, but with the other one, it's brown, blue, red, and purple. That's really what mm-hmm. we call them. Um, but you use those. Those are thing. Those are workers that you can use to use for buildings commonly when you're getting the buildings you'll need to make sure that you're putting a worker in a generic space or a specific worker in a specific space depending upon what the building requires and you'll need to have a building be fully manned in order to be able to use the benefit of it or gain the points from at the end of the game so that's what you need the workers for but in addition the colonists excuse me can be used to enhance the usefulness of your dice in various different ways Uh, We'll get back to each of those when we discuss more of the gameplay. Uh, The way the colonists are going to come out is from, usually just from a draw draw bag. The game comes with a black draw bag that you'll use to draw workers out. Now, each of the different Mm -hmm. workers are basically little meeples that you'll be able to pull out of the bag, and then you drop them on the ship called the doorstep. Um, Those meeples all have unique shapes. So theoretically... If your sense of touch was really, really, really good, you would be able to tell which meeples you're fishing for and fish for them. They're tiny meeples, and that's never been an issue for me. But the game does solve this by also creating a... <laughs> the greatest component in this game. A <laughs> very cool-looking component, I will say, in my personal opinion, yeah. which is the Shake Ship. <laughs> so what the greatest shake... component with the worst name. How about that? 
What the shake ship is, is it's a cardboard constructed ship piece. Um, that's essentially just two flat panels. Then you attach panels along the sides to close it up. And what you're supposed to do with that is you fill it up and there's actually an access hatch to easily fill it up. So you take off the side easily to put all the colonists in at the beginning of the game. And you're supposed to shake up some shake up the colonists and then spill them out to pull some from the back. And theoretically that would solve the problem of how easy it is to feel which type of person is that you're looking for. Now, in my opinion, if you're trying to use the shakeshift to get a specific amount of people, it's frustrating. <laughs> Let's say you're playing in a three-player game and you're supposed to shake out six people each time, but you keep shaking out eight. Well, you have to put them back in and do it again, or you have to figure out a way to solve that. And that just wasn't a problem when I'm using the drawback. Now, the shakeshift looks really cool. And I know that other people who I've played with have no issues shaking out exactly the right type of the right amount. I suppose it depends on how much you like it and if you really prefer that type of thing. Uh, me personally, mm -hmm. I'd just rather have a big draw bag. Uh, I, I don't know that I necessarily prefer the draw bag that comes with the game. It's got a square edges as opposed to round edged one. But I mean. I, it, it looks. It definitely looks really cool. It is really nice that they included it. it it's just not my favorite component. Mm, okay. So it sounds like it, it may or it's a hit or miss. Though I, I love the name. I, I like the way it looks. It looks pretty neat. I think the axis and and when I say this stuff that I like it, it I'm not sure if it's tongue in cheek or not. It's also very silly looking. I think and very goofy in a way. I don't think but, it's any but more I goofy appreciate than the rest it. of it. I think the art style yeah, of it matches everything else. Yeah, but with and and you know maybe Goofy's not an issue because with the bag you can't do the whooshing sound effect as the ship lands, <laughs> <laughs> which you can't do with a cardboard ship. I suppose. <laughs> um, the game does come with another set of meeples the, for toolkits. There are thirty-five green toolkits that come with the game. And these are just tokens, they're resources that you can collect that you use to dice fix. You can spend them to change the value of dice. Uh, there's also some wood mineral markers and, and plastic energy markers. Both of those are big wood or plastic tokens. They're resources. They're relatively generic, uh, and they're perfectly fine for what it is that you need. Uh, the game also comes with a bunch of expedition badges and a couple extra five times tokens. There is a player board for each player that they come with and will be able to sort everything. It's really not necessary, but it's there. Mm -hmm. uh, and there's also large card, like Terra size, or even a little bit bigger, event cards. Each game has six event cards, which are used to track the six event rounds. And those have multiple purposes to them. It helps create more variability to the game. It mixes up the way the worker placement does. And the bulk of each of those cards is built up with a very nice looking piece of art so i think that those are a good addition to the game for multiple purposes both in terms of gameplay and in terms of artistic style it brings it brings 14 event cards and you said you only use six so so after a few games you start to see them all but but 14 is good enough to get a decent mix every time i guess exactly yes even though some of them are kind of similar mm -hmm. um yeah. and you definitely have the idea of them it doesn't give you a lot of variability, but this definitely helps with the variability. So, 
I believe that has just about covered all of the components. Shall we talk about our thoughts on the rules next? Yeah, let's do that. The general rules for the game, I think, are perfectly fine. The game is, for the most part, it's a dice worker placement game. Um, there have been other dice worker placement games. This explains the basic idea. It steps you through step by step with the, the new exposure mechanic. Um, which is perhaps the new element that this game has thrown in to a dice worker mechanic. It's explained it well. I think that when you're learning the rules, or especially if you're teaching the rules, to a degree you want to tell people, hey, um, I'm going to explain to you how you claim this building, but you probably want to wait till you hear why you should claim this building, and then we'll go back and just sort of refresh our memory on how you claim it, because... The rules put that in that order and then goes through and goes through and how you claim it, then goes through how you resolve each one of them. But you don't know why you're doing it. I know that we always, or a lot of people have always talked that when you're explaining rules, you always want to say how you win the game or how you win the game, what the goal is, and then go through mechanics. This one is a tough thing to do because on the one hand, you want to explain how you get the different buildings and spots on the board used, but you also want to be explaining why you would want to do each of them. So, yeah, I think the way the rules explain it is good. You just have to make sure that you're following along and tracking all of them in your head as you're learning the rules. Mm -hmm. uh, as mentioned, I believe that the rules are very good and have no real issues with them. Um, the way the solar rules work are an addendum at the end of the game. And I'll discuss specifically how the changes that it makes for the gameplay at work when we get to that. But it, it's just got an extra couple pages at the end for it. Okay. Yeah, you know, I, I, I looked through the rules today and getting ready for the podcast. And I didn't read them in super deep detail. I looked at the setup and things like that and enjoyed the art and whatnot. But as I read through the different actions... I did get that sense that, yeah, I, I'm reading that you could put a die here or put a die there, but I don't get necessarily why, just like you're describing it. And it felt like they didn't put it in, in the best order, necessarily. I mean, they put it in the order of how things happen. Mm -hmm. I, I, you just have to sort of... I yeah. wish there had been a warning, but you just have to read the whole rules, I suppose, is where that really comes from. Yeah. But, you know, everything's laid out well. It's all clear. When they explain something, it made perfect sense. I didn't have any trouble understanding what I read at all. So, you know, it's a good oh, rule. They book. have a reference, an appendix for all the buildings, and it's yep. alphabetical order. <laughs> oh, nice. Okay. So, when they when they have those basics covered, there's definitely a check mark for that. Yep, absolutely. And there's even a diagram how to build your shake ship. Truth. So that is the rules. Albert, what would you like to talk about next? Um, hmm, let's see. We've done summary. We've done the rules. The theme? True. What do you think about the theme, Albert? It. I like it. I like science fiction games. They always seem really neat. The, the idea that you're trying to colonize Europa is cool. But I love, I love the way the art comes across and really makes the theme more exciting. I don't get. I don't have any sense of how thematic the game may or may not feel, but the art sure, sure makes it exciting. I mean, in the end, buildings, buildings are buildings are buildings. The fact that you're trying to colonize it on Europa, 
there's not, you know, like fabricator technology or high science fiction or anything like that. Like you're building buildings. (laughs) You have a spaceship that takes you there, but I mean, you're building buildings. So, I mean, it, it could literally be anywhere that you're doing this. Like if someone had told me, Hey, this is actually in the Antarctic or something like that. You wouldn't have questioned it, yeah. I wouldn't have really questioned it. So it's fine. Yep. It's fine. Do, I get it. Do the event cards, they they don't have any flavor text, but they do have like a title, does it? The event cards, well, they have a little bit of flavor text. Okay. Um, there are also encounter cards uh, or expedition oh. cards. Excuse me, expedition cards. Um, so there's events that's once per round. There's expedition cards that's once per round. The expedition is a place that you can go. The event is something modifying all the places or a place. Mm-hmm. So both of them have like two lines of flavor text. And I mean, they make mention of things like spaceships and stuff like that. It it all ties together the theme. It It's a theme. Okay. <laughs> okay. Gotcha. If you're really into the theme, you can enjoy it. If if you couldn't care less about the theme, you might not even notice it. And it'll still be a fun game either way, it sounds like. Yeah, it's <laughs> fine. Okay. The theme is fine, in my opinion. All right. Well, then let's move on from the theme to the well, game. Let's play. talk about the gameplay. So let me introduce a couple mechanics just to make things clear. So this is a dice worker placement. What that means is that on your turn, you're going to have a pile of five dice. And you're going to place one at a time. So I'll put a die, you'll put a die, I'll put a die, you'll put a die, etc. We're going to place those dice around the board. And there are seven different places that you can put them around the board. For the most part, with one of them happens immediately when you get it. If you just put a die on the outfitter, you get toolkits. And toolkits can be used to add or subtract one from a die. All the other ones, you put them there in the placement phase. And then a resolution phase, you see how much you get. Now, you the, roll the die at the beginning of the turn, right? Before you place Correct. Them? You roll all your dice so everyone can see the dice that you have. And then you start choosing which of your five dice to go and put out and put in different places. Um, two of the spaces give you resources. That's the quarry and the vents. The vents gives you energy. The quarry gives you minerals. Energy is used for protecting using your colonists. You'll need to spend energy to keep them from taking damage at the end of the round. You'll need to use energy to send them out on expeditions. Uh, And then minerals are used to construct buildings. You'll have to have minerals to pay the cost for buildings. With both of these, the way it works is that you'll place based on the expo- what they call exposure. That whenever you put a die in, you'll put it ahead of any higher value dice. So let's say I were putting a 2 into the vents, and there was already a 1 and a 3 there. I'll slot my 2 right between the 1 and the 3. The reason why you're doing that is because when we get to the resolution phase... You'll provide you'll provide resources based in die order. So the person who put a one down will get first, then the person with the two, then the three, then the four, etc. The disadvantage of putting a one down is you only get one resource. If you put a two, you get two resources. If you get a three, you get three resources. So mm-hmm. the person who gets a six is probably going to clean sweep and get everything, but they may end up getting nothing because they're last to take, and there may be nothing left. 
there's a push pull when you're going to the vents and the and the quarry. Mm-hmm. Now I mentioned that minerals are used to construct buildings. That's done at the gantry. There are a certain number of buildings out each round. Um, what you do is you bid on them. You can put down a die to to bid and say I'm willing to pay minerals equal to the die I put out. So if I put a one there, then you're paying one mineral. Another person can outbid you and put down a two, in which case they have to pay two minerals, but they'll get to build the building. If they put a two out, um, your die gets stuck there, and you'll get some benefit at the end. The general rule is that whenever you don't get something, so whether it's there's nothing left in the quarry or the vents, uh, or in the gantry, um, if someone else gets a building that you bid on so you don't get it, you get something called relief. There's a track at the top that every time you get relief, you go up on the track one more. And the benefits of going up the relief track get better and better. First, you just start with a toolkit, then an energy, then a mineral, then a guy, and then just points. Every time you get relief, you just get a point, which is pretty good for a game that scores the way it scores. Um... In order to get workers, there's a couple different ways that you can get workers. Um, the most common way of getting workers is from doorstep. Each round, a couple of people will be shaken out of the shake ship, shake ship, and they'll go over to the doorstep, which is the ship where workers come into. You'll put dice in the doorstep area, and using the same exposure idea, it'll slot higher and lower. Um, the die value determines how many people you can choose to do. Now that unlike with the other one where a value six gets you six work, six minerals, six does not get you six workers. It just gets you three. Um, I think that's how that divides up, but it, it, it's printed on the board, how much it gives you. Um, you have to pay energy to take them from the doorstep to ferry them on in. Um, at which point in time you get to take your colonists in. You can put them in any of your buildings. You can put them in the main worker holding spot. Uh, you can upgrade your workers at the academy. You can upgrade your colonists at the academy. Uh, if you place a colonist along with a die at the academy, you can replace that colonist with a different type of colonist. So if you wanted a steward, uh, you'd have to put a five or a six there with a different guy. Then at the resolution phase, it'll come back. And that's, there's no exposure or anything like that. It's just first person to go there. I will point out that I very rarely went to that slot. Usually I just wanted more people rather than trading at one for one. But the game does reward you for having full sets. If you have a full set of people at the end of the game, Every full set of people, so that's one of each of the four different types, is worth three points. Without that, leftover people are worth one point for each three people. So you, towards the end of the game, may want to swap in and out to make sure that you're collecting full set, or to make sure you fully staff a building. Mm-hmm. But um, that's only a maybe, and maybe if you can get it, but if you have what you need for that, you know, usually it's not like just one that's missing from it. It's usually more. I just felt, for the most part, for me, I used it very rarely. I would usually just be getting more people from the doorstep. Yeah, but I could see where where it could it could uh, just be needed in some games, especially if you have fewer players. You're going to have fewer 
fear new people showing up each round. So you may have all the same type coming out, and if you really need one of those purple or red ones, and they're just not coming out, then then you got to use that. Definitely agree. Yes. Yeah. Um, the last space, which is technically the first space, I just skipped it because it's a more complicated one to explain, um, is going on those expeditions, and this is called the base camp. Every round, there's going to be a new expedition card that's going to come out. The expedition card has a certain number printed on it for how difficult the expedition is. If dice are placed there that in total exceed the value of that, then during the resolution phase, uh, whoever has the highest placed dice values, so the two top, are going to get one of the two rewards. So whoever's the most gets to select whichever one they want, and the second most gets to select the other one. Now, sometimes it's obvious what you want, like if it's a choice between five minerals or three minerals, um, but otherwise, mm-hmm. you know, it just doesn't go that way. Um, so you have to be putting enough dice to go there to get high enough above that thing. So if someone else is a six there and the value is eight, you have to put down at least two, otherwise it won't be a success. If it's not a success, all that happens is just that you wasted your dice. So generally, you kind of want there to be a success, and sometimes you want to make sure that you're the most there so that you're the one that gets the rewards from it. You can now, send... Go ahead. Can um, like if, if somebody plays a six and then another person plays a two and you really want to go there, can you go ahead and sneak in a three at this point, or is it now full once it... Once you reach that A goal for that specific expedition. Yes. You can still go there. Um, and if someone only put in a two, you can suddenly sneak in a three to be able to be the one that's going to get the rewards. Okay. If that's the way you want to go there. That doesn't work for ties. Um, if you're only tying. So if, if you were saying, hey, I want to do that, and you'll put a two in there, it's the person who placed first who does that. Okay. okay? Mm-hmm. But... Similarly, if you put a three and then someone else puts a six and you're like, I really want the rewards, you can go throw a four in there and then your total is seven. So ah, you're higher okay. than your six. Right? Mm-hmm. Okay. And so that answers the question. You can visit one of the locations more than one time. Correct. Okay. You can't you can keep going around to the to the locations. Yeah, you can visit them more than one time. Okay. So when you're going on expeditions, you can send colonists. Now, the colonists on buildings, so if they're staffing a building, they can't come. But if they're just hanging out in your your spot, they're called a shelter, you can send them along. Um, It costs a resource to do that, either an energy or a mineral to send them out. Um, But when you do that, they'll give you certain benefits. The pioneers, they add plus one to the strength of the expedition. So if you send an ex, uh, a colonist, a pioneer, and a five die, so you have a six total power. If you send an engineer, if the expedition is successful, you get two resources, so minerals and energy. If you send a marine, you get to actually change another opponent's die down by one or two. So you can change their five to be a three, for example. Mm. <laughs> so you're attacking their, you're attacking them with a marine. Exactly, it's very, <laughs> con- very conflicty to use that. Yeah. And then with the stewards, the way the stewards work is complicated. If you send a steward, you have to send it with a die value one or two. Then, if the expedition is successful and you're the first person to choose a reward, 
you also get a victory point to do that. The game specifically calls out that this is hard to pull off. Um, usually what this means is you're sending like a six and you're holding a one or two back and then you're seeing what else happens. In solo, it's easier to do um, to a degree because there's luck of the draw that comes into it, but it's there's, they're, they're robots. They're not going to be like, hey, I saw you put out a, pie, a steward. There's no way I'm going to let you get that extra point. Then you go and just mess you up, which happens all the time in two-player. Mm. In in solo, it, it's 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 a dumb bot. <laughs> so they don't they don't quite stop you. So I found that much easier to do in solo, which was a good way of getting points in solo. Um, so that covers all the spots, and I did go through both how you place and also how you resolve. Um, you'll do all of that. So first you'll do placement. Like you said, you go die, die, die all the way around. And you can go back to places multiple times. So if you want a bunch of minerals, you can go back and get all your dice over minerals if you want. Uh, you'll then do upkeep phase, where you're able to move your colonists around into shelters or activate buildings. Uh, if you don't have, if your colonists aren't in a building, they're just at the shelter, the general spot, You'll have to pay energy to keep them warm. Um, if they're not, you know, if they're not working, then you have to pay for them. Uh, you'll then refresh the board, putting out more resources, putting a new event card, new expedition, and keep passing it around. There's the the game has a really different way of choosing the start player, which isn't really relevant for solo, but just because it's weird, I'm going to call it out. <laughs> mm-hmm. Whoever has the least amount of resources chooses the star player for the next round. So essentially whoever's not prepped to use it well is the one that can choose what they're going, who gets first player. Now, sometimes you may say, I want to be last player because I want to see where everyone went and be able to slot in there after them. Or you may say, I want to be first player and get first dibs at something. Um, Usually I think you probably want to get last player and, slot something out from someone Dif- difficult choice on that one but it's weird mm-hmm. that they did that um I, I i really don't know why that extra pressure point is put in about tying it's not tied to whoever's losing some other games have said whoever's losing is first player and both that's tied to whoever has the least amount of points not resources and also whoever has the it's not a it's not a decision point. It just happens. With this one, both it's weird that it's tied to resources. The reason it's weird tying to resources is because let's say one player saved up all the resources last turn and then took a huge turn, did a whole bunch of stuff, managed to get all the buildings and they got all the re- they they got all the good stuff. They're well they had a great the turn. They had a great turn. Now they don't have anything. Well why are they start player? Why why are they why why do they get to <laughs> pick not first? Fair, yeah. They're winning. So huh. yeah. that's the first thing. The second thing is, I don't know why it has to be at that point a decision point. Because exactly this point, let's say you've got four players playing, and now you have to, first of all, you have to go and have everyone count the resources every time. But second of all, whoever has the least has to sit there and go, hmm do I want to go first or do I want to go last? Well, give me a second. Let me go read the buildings and read the expedition and consider my workers and think about it. And maybe, and everyone else is like, just pick. <laughs> I, I don't know why I, I, I'm not a fan of it. 
I I think it bogs. It, it does seem weird. It doesn't it doesn't seem to make sense. I think you're right. When I first read it in the rule book, I thought it was whoever's in the last place was, was which is then a nice mechanism to help whoever's behind catch up. Right? Sure. But it doesn't. But it would also do be that. nice if it it doesn't do that. First of all, it doesn't help whoever's behind. Second of all, even if it were least points, it emphasizes it's supposed to be that they choose it. Because there are definitely times where you'll choose to go first and times they choose to go last. Mm-hmm. You can't imagine ever choosing to be like second. Maybe. But you'll there are definitely times where you want to push one way or the other. It's nice that you have that decision. It just bogs the game down when only one person is making a decision. When you're taking turns to place dice, you're thinking, I'm going to go here, I'm going to go there. You're thinking about what you want to do with your dice. This is before anyone's rolled dice. There are no decisions for anyone else to make other than sit there and watch you think about this. Yep. This, this, this would, this seems to like try and make it a more brain burning game than it has been all of a sudden. And like, that would be an interesting mechanism. If for example, people could bid and pay whoever's got that choice to choose them or something like that, or to make, or, you know, who to choose. And then suddenly that would open up the game and add all sorts of complexity and interaction. But that isn't really this game. (laughs) That might be interesting in the, in the right game. That this is not the right game for that. But yeah, I mean, it's it's a weird idea. It's well, it's an interesting idea, but it sounds like it's not correctly implemented. So we're going to be doing this for six rounds total. Yeah. So we keep doing that over six rounds. Um, and again, when you're going to the gantry, the first three rounds um, will be buildings that you can use for certain powers. And all the buildings have to be fully manned. There's di- there's generic spots, which are just open. And there's slots which require a specific type of worker. So they'll have the icon color for that worker. It's very easy to tell which icon is, if only by color. But even if there's mm-hmm. some colorblind issue, each of the icons is different. Um, so you have to have it be fully manned. So fully manned, it gives you the first the benefit that you don't have to pay energy to keep continue to pay for them to stay warm. But second of all, it gets you the benefit of whatever the building is. So if you're buying a building, usually you want it to be fully manned. Occasionally you'll just want to scoop a building for someone else so that they can't use it for their engine. Mm-hmm. Probably not. But sometimes you can certainly see why you would want to do that. So once you man a building, is it manned for us as the gamer? Do you got to keep remanning it? Uh, one. As long as you're not pulling your workers, your colonists, out of that building, it is manned for the rest of the game. It is possible to move your workers around. Say you want to move workers to fill the point buildings towards the end of the game. Mm -hmm. But I I haven't done too much of that. I have done some of it, but not too much. Okay. All right. So, yeah, that's the general idea you go through. Um, Leftover energy, leftover minerals are worth points. Buildings are worth points. Uh, for every fully staffed building, it's worth points. If you get a whole lot of points, you get points based on how many buildings you get. Like if you get seven, you get eight points. The colonists are worth points for sets. Um, and then, oh, I forgot there's expedition badges. Um, if you are successful in an expedition, Whoever has the top two benefits, so again, if you're getting a benefit, you get an expedition badge and a reward. Expedition badges are just used for endgame points. Um, if you only have zero or one of them, you actually lose points. If you have eight of them, which means that you've done double successes a couple times, you get five points. 
usually like if you've done one every round, you have six of them, so you get three points. If both players, like in a two-player game, have done it every round, it means absolutely nothing. <laughs> uh, and then if you have the most toolkits, you earn two points. Whoever has the most amount of points wins the game. And is the um, best colonizer. And is exactly. <laughs> so I've gone with a fair amount of detail over all the different aspects of the game. Let me discuss a little bit of my thoughts on those different aspects now. You ready for this ride, Albert? <laughs> yeah. It's, in my opinion, it's a worker placement game. It's, mm-hmm. it doesn't feel, it doesn't feel particularly magical. It doesn't feel particularly cool. You put a thing out and you do it. You're managing resources to be able to grab buildings and things like that. It, in terms of gameplay, it feels fine. It doesn't. It doesn't feel outstanding. It doesn't feel cool. There's not a cool mechanic. I mentioned before that I think the only different mechanic, unique mechanic, is that exposure idea, where if you put out a die, so it slots in. So as opposed to being first come first serve or grabbing things like that, everything is kind of like a bidding game that you mm-hmm. bid less in order to be able to go faster. And so you're pushing that with the other players. That's maybe the only unique thing, but it doesn't. It doesn't feel unique. It doesn't. It does feel unique. It doesn't feel cool. It doesn't feel magical. It doesn't feel interesting. If you don't have mm-hmm. a dice worker placement game in your collection, or you're working for one. This is a really good one. If you don't, if if you haven't played a lot of these, I do recommend it. But just doesn't feel magical. Here's another example for why it doesn't feel magical. The the relief mechanic. If you fail to take something, you get a relief. And the reliefs are pretty good replacements. I mean, if you thought you were going to be getting five, you know, five energy, and instead you end up with one energy, I suppose you could be sad, but you can't really have expected you to be getting five energy. You were just hoping to clean up <laughs> what's left. And Every die does, almost, every die does something. And then if you keep getting a bunch of relief, you get points, just straight points. That's pretty good. So you mm-hmm. kind of maybe want to get some relief. There's there's even a thing, like, you can't actively choose to get relief instead of the thing you want. Because otherwise you would do that. And I think that just shows, like, the relief is, it's not so bad. The mere fact that I have to call out, you can't voluntarily choose relief, just calls out, it's not that bad to lose on the bidding. Mm-hmm. what I'm calling the bidding on the exposure. And there's there's a tension here. There's a tension, and, and that tension I'm talking about right now is with multiplayer. I'll get to the soul in just a moment. But there's a tension here. There's definitely a tension, a push-pull with bidding, trying to get out everything you need, not pushing it too far at the risk that you're going too late, not trying to wait too long at the risk of having someone else scoop the exact colonist you want or the building that you want or trying to be so cheap on buildings that you get outbid there's a lot of push pull there's a lot of interesting decision points i suppose it just doesn't it, it's it doesn't feel magical enough amidst all the other games mm-hmm. that's interesting you know when i read the rule book i and i went through i said you know what this looks like a like a pretty typical game nothing about it seems new it all seems standard and this is exactly what you're telling me um so you know it's it's pretty direct and straightforward you you get the sense of what it is up front 
I find that interesting what you said about the uh, catch-up mechanism, not the catch-up mechanism, but that, um, what's it called? I keep forgetting what it's called, that little track. where relief. The relief, thank you. The That relief track seems like a neat idea because it keeps anybody from like suffering too mad, bad if they made a bad choice. But it sounds like it's also taken away from the fun of it because if you mess up without the relief track, that then you know there's a risk and you get punished for it. So you got to play more carefully and play well. It definitely here, reduces it, some of the risk, yeah. Yeah, so it kind of it lets you be a little sloppy and not worry about it. So it seems like it's a pretty family-friendly kind of game, but I guess you could just take mm-hmm. that relief thing out entirely and just not use it and make it more tense and interesting. Maybe. Maybe, yeah. Uh, okay. So, I, and I'm sure some people have house-ruled that. Yeah. I'm not going to review a game too much based on house-rules. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it is something worth you know, being aware of that might be worth looking into if this is a game you're curious about it and you thought it true. sounded too friendly. Yeah, definitely check it out. So, so, so Solo. Let, let me talk about Solo, yes. So when you're playing Solo, essentially this, this is one where you are not having to track another player. What you're just trying to do is mimic the idea. It's, it's a beat-your-own-high-score type game. Uh, and the game gives you a list of what scores are really good. Like if you get better than 33, that is the best possible. 20 or less is the is the worst. And the way that the game <laughs> sort of simulates other opponents placing things out of the board is by the use of drones. There'll be two drone players. You get five dice. Each drone gets four dice. Um, what they'll do is they'll roll one of their four dice. Uh and it'll show, you know, one to six. Each of the different places is listed as one to six because that's how you do it for resolution and for setting it up. You go around the board one to six. Whichever one they roll, so the first drone puts its die in that space and then goes clockwise around the board. It'll roll each of its dice. At that point in time, it'll roll each of its dice and go clockwise around the board placing it from that spot and on up. So it's randomizing and sort of like filling two thirds of the board with a die. So it's a limited amount of information after. So you'll then get to place all five of your dice. You'll then roll a die for the second drone and that'll determine where it goes then it'll go from it'll roll all its dice just like normal, and it, you'll put it out in ascending value high, lowest to highest, counterclockwise around the board. So it'll go the other way around the board, and it may it may come in and bump you. It may bother you. It may you know cause trouble for you. This allows there to be some randomness so that you don't know everything that's going on while still allowing some predictability, some decision points because the first drone has already placed it. So really it's simulating one player because it's not tracking everything. It's not doing everything. It's just removing stuff from the board or getting in the way of you being able to move stuff on the board. So it's kind of like an opposing player with eight dice, but those eight dice are placed completely at random and without knowing what it is that it's doing. So there'll be some times when it won't come out to help you at base camp, for example, won't help you in those expeditions. And you'll have to think, well, do I want to go do the expedition all by myself? If I succeed all by myself, I get both benefits. If I don't, he's going to come help me and I've wasted a die. Whereas if I usually, two-thirds of the time, it's going to come help you 
with something at base camp. So probably it'll come help me. I can probably rely on it. And then this is the time when, you know, the time when you rely on that is the time when you can't. <laughs> now, so, did you say that it's placing them and you're you're taking turns with it doing this or did it? it no, do it places its first four clockwise. Okay. You get to place all five of yours wherever you want. And then it places its second four counterclockwise. Okay. Gotcha. Yep. And it's essentially just going to remove stuff afterwards. Like it removes energy, minerals. It removes buildings. It removes colonists. Uh, it, it, if both of their expeditions come out, then it can bump you out of any expedition because it counts as two separate players for that purpose. So it's just removing stuff. It's just blocking things. There's a lot of push-pull. All those decisions that occur in the middle of the game, do I want to push it? Do I want to go high or low? It's a mix of you have some information and not all of the information. It feels very much like a two-player game. It's got that same pressure point that you have for a two-player game. And that's what that's what I'm looking for for a solo game. I very much like this method of setting up the solo game. It's easy to run. It's easy mm-hmm. to understand. It's easy to do. It doesn't get in the way of playing the game. And it allows me just to play and enjoy the game you know, by, by myself. It's perfect. <laughs> it's just mm-hmm. what we're looking for. I remember that same mechanism in a New Bedford sort of thing where the the AI would pick a spot and then go from there clockwise only taking the actions and it would skip spaces. It It, it wasn't exactly the same. Yeah. There is a board, a a wheel and you put the, the bot on one of the spaces. And I think it started randomly or or maybe it started in the first space. And from then on, it would always go clockwise. So you knew what it was going to do coming up and it was sort of simulating a player, but it was also sort of random. Yeah. And I remember it worked there. This one's, even simpler <laughs> because okay. there's no board. There's no wheel that you have to calculate. Well, what does this thing do? What does that do? You're just, you're just putting dice out and mm-hmm. it interacts yep, yep. just like assume it does all that it can and just removes it from the game as if a regular yep. player, everything it possibly can. Yep. But, I mean, it sounds all right. I, every time I hear that, that sort of thing where you just go somewhere and then go in order clockwise, I always get suspicious about something like that, but it sounds like it works fine. Yeah. It really does. It works just fine. I don't know why they set it up that one way is clockwise, one way is counterclockwise. I guess it's to try and help ensure that there's overlap between the, the highs and lows, which is a nice thing to do. Um, it's not too hard to remember. Like Once you get into the flow, you you just do it, and it's super simple. Mm-hmm. Like I don't the think most the direction would thing, matter. I mean, The direction does matter, because if you're, having, if you're going highest to lowest, counterclockwise versus if you're always going clockwise, then the the highs have a lower chance to mess up with the lows. Actually, no, I'm not sure if that's exactly that. I don't true. think so because I mean, if you're going, if the second one's going counterclockwise and you roll a one, it's going to do like one through four. If you wrote, if you did it in the other direction, if you wrote a four, it's going to go four through one. It's going to be exactly the same. I have no idea. I'm not so. Sure. And it's still a one in six chance of getting any numbers. I think it would be. Ex- I think it'd be exactly the same. It'd be an interesting math ah, problem, I guess. But whatever, it's fun. <laughs> it, it it gives it a bit of a gimmick, which is at least good. 
I don't think it's a gimmick. I wouldn't call it a gimmick. It's just the way it's done. I'll call it a gimmick. I will. Sure. So, I I'll mean, in terms of in terms of the solo, I give it a strong recommendation. I think that this is a very good way of doing a solo game. In terms of the, the main game itself, I'll give it a good recommendation. I think that it's a good game. I think that it is a very good implementation of a worker placement game. Just to me, it doesn't feel magic. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, I mean, th- thank you for telling us about this game, Julius. It does sound neat to me. It, that, Like you said, it sounds like a good worker placement game, and it, it'll fill a gap if you don't have something like that. And it's soloable, which is nice. Not all dice worker placement games are soloable. So that's something. Very true. <laughs> Alrighty, then until next time. All right, to infinity and beyond. Good night, Albert. Good night. Good night, all. Thanks for listening. We love feedback, so we love hearing from you. You can reach me at Julius at OnePlayerPodcast.com or JLBird on BGG. And Albert can be reached at Albert at OnePlayerPodcast.com or Fractaloon on BGG. Our website is OnePlayerPodcast.com with the number one, and we're also on Twitter at OnePlayerPodcast. The intro music is copyright Angus can be found at Gemendo.com. The transition music is copyright by Dan Elduce Pancaldi, whose page is at DanPancaldi.com. The One Player Podcast is protected under a Creative Commons share-alike license. Thanks for listening.